Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Thanks for joining us. You might be on 102.7, the old-fashioned way on the FM band. You might be on digital. You might be streaming us online. You might even be listening back on demand or via podcast. Whichever way, fabulous to have you with us. As I said, it's myself, Panel Beater, and hopefully, all being well, we have uh, via Skype, Dr. Sharma and Neonatal. Are you there, gentlemen? We think we are. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you both. I can see you. You can't see me because there's no studio camera. You're both looking very well. I'm speaking on behalf of the uh, listeners. <laughs> it's great to hear that. <laughs> um, hey, uh, guys, we, um, we're, we're still locked down. We're, what time are we getting the news today? Oh, I'm not actually sure what the time that announcement is, but um, but there's been a couple of uh, news articles released already. Uh, I think just kind of potentially softening the blow of, of what's to come in terms of some modelling, suggesting when stage four restrictions might be be lifted. They're thinking potentially extending them out to kind of October. So I think we're, we're, it's going to be probably midday. I reckon we'll, we'll hear the news. That's my prediction. Midday. Yeah, so um, you know, it's a bit of a lorry. I know, uh, Dr. Sharm, you've been a bit of a fan of uh, interpreting the timing of it as relevant to the actual messaging. So well, 11 o'clock seems to be the benchmark. Um so if it's going to 12 o'clock, oh, are we starting to drift into not the best news territory? That That's right, yeah. So so middays, you know, tends to be all this serious, serious kind of news coming. Late in the day, you know, 3, 4 p.m. is, oh, good God, God help us all. And then, of course, um, what, what uh, Premier Dan Andrews is wearing as well. You know, North Face jacket, you know, he's kind of getting to work, but if he's wearing the suit, uh, you know, you, you know, yeah, there's some hard times Please. to come. Yeah, yeah, It'll- yeah. It'll definitely be the suit today, I think. I think uh, that's my prediction. Yeah, it'll be the suit. Okay. How are you, Neonatal? I'm well. I'm well. Um, I, I quite liked the uh, the 63 new coronavirus cases this morning that we that we got. Um, that was uh, a nice little drop from what we've been seeing. So I'm very proud of my fellow Victorians. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I've been well. Oh, good, good. Yeah, 63, better than the 70s. So if we just keep moving that first number of the two down, um, then then over time we're going to get there, right? Um, notwithstanding uh, our fellow Victorians, Neonatal, who decided to take a visit to the uh, War Memorial or the Shrine of Remembrance uh, in Melbourne yesterday. Yes, um, I I was going to politely just say that I have nothing to say about them this morning. Um, <laughs> the less said, the better, huh? That's that's my political response. I'm sure <laughs> Triple R will um, appreciate. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Hey, um, it, it's also Father's Day. Yes, yes, no, it is. Not, and, not, not uh, the- <laughs> you know, happy Father's Day to all fathers out there. And uh, and if you you can't see. Your, your family, because of restrictions and everything, you know, consider, you know, a, a Skype or a, or a Zoom hello and thank you to them. That, that's and, right. And yeah. uh, I'm sure they'll appreciate you, you know, buying them socks or whatever it is that we all buy our dads yeah, um, right. very soon in the, in the mail. I'm, I'm sure you, you popped it in the mail already. Yeah, Jackson uh, socks. 
I'll give a big shout out to my dad, who's a who's a very avid listener to Radiotherapy and has been for quite some years. So happy Father's Day. I'll call you later on. Happy Father's Day to Neonatal's dad. <laughs> um, the uh, Marinara crew, they uh, whipped out a couple of um, dodgy um, dad jokes during the show oh. there. Don't know if you heard them, but they, they went bold. They went bold. Um, we won't put ourselves on the spot on that one, as tempting as it might be. Um, folks, thanks so much to the listeners who have subscribed um, over the last couple of weeks. It's been a fabulous um, uh, engagement with the Triple R community. Really been wonderful getting um, those subscriptions coming in. Of course, we haven't had the phone room this year, so it's all been via the Triple R website, rr.org.au. And look, it's far from over. Okay, so we're still um, looking out for your uh, subscriptions and anything you can um, send our way. Uh, not everyone's in the greatest of positions at the moment with the COVID lockdown and all that's going on, but if you are able to help your station in isolation, um, please do. The um, subscriptions are still coming in, and uh, that means the prizes are still available. If you can jump online while you're listening to uh, Radiotherapy, please do, um, and uh, you'll be just adding your name to a great community. Look, we've got a tremendous show coming up. Uh, Neonatal, you've got a later on in the show. Oh, well, my guest later on. So let me just flag that is um, Dr. Um, Madhu Baskaran, who's a professor of engineering at um, RMIT, who's been doing fabulous work over a number of years now um, on a number of things that we'll perhaps be able to talk to. But we'll have her on the um, show shortly to talk to her about some developments her and her team have done with eSkin and what it might mean for the future of um, uh, prosthetics. One of the big challenges, as I understand it, has been to get skin replacement where the skin can actually still communicate with the nervous system. And um, we'll be hearing from her to talk about that uh, in much more detail um, coming up. Uh, Neonatal, you've got a couple of guests coming as well. Yeah, after the break, we've got um, some amazing guests, uh, Forbes McGain and Jason Monty, who are some amazing biomedical uh, uh, engineers and an ICU doctor who has uh, invented this isolation hood, which is, uh, I'll, I'll get them to explain it, but it's essentially um, a, a neat little bit of technology that's preventing uh, healthcare worker infections and um, protecting, you know, the nurses and doctors in our ICUs looking after COVID-19 patients. Brilliant. So we found ourselves with a bit of a biomed theme. Yeah, I love it. It's great. Yep, good stuff. Well, look, without further ado, let's um, let's take a little bit of music, um, get a bit of toe-tapping going, and we'll be back to talk um, all things isolids in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Welcome back to Triple R Radiotherapy. It's myself, panel beater, with uh, on Skype we've got uh, Dr Sharma and a neonatal. And I think we've got some connections. Neonatal, you've got some fine introductions to make. 
Excellent. So hopefully we've got uh, Dr. Forbes McCain, who is an anaesthetist and intensive care physician at Western Health. He remains passionate about making seemingly small environmental, financial and social sustainability changes to how we practice medicine and magnifying those changes through every nation's hospitals. Forbes is currently collaborating with colleagues at the University of Melbourne and friends within the Doctors for Environment, examining ways to make hospitals more sustainable and being stewards for Earth's extraordinary biodiversity. And also joining us will be Professor Jason Monty, who is an experimental researcher in fluid mechanics and director of the uh, Mitchell Hydrodynamics Laboratory. His experiences range from turbulent pipe and channel flows to tow tank testing, air-sea interactions, and ice-wave interactions. And uh, hopefully we've both got you both on the line. Yeah, good morning. Have we got you there, Forbes? Yeah. Ah, there we go. Did you? Ah, <laughs> you excellent. Made... Okay. So um, welcome both to Radiotherapy. Um, now, I think you, you might have heard my introduction of the isolation hood before, but I'm sure the listeners would appreciate um, directly from the horse's mouth. What exactly is your amazing new uh, invention? Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. Uh, it's uh, yeah, Forbes again from Western Health here. Uh, and Jason Monty's on the phone as well. Um, this is a device that uh, has been made in pretty rapid time, um, which is, it looks at, it's a device that has a, a, a canopy, a plastic canopy that comes down over the patient, and it also has a fan and a filter at the back that draws um, any potentially infectious particles away from the healthcare worker and out the back and through a sort of a scrubber, an air, an air scrubber filter that then returns the air that's been cleaned. So essentially it cleans the air and prevents coughs and other particles getting on to healthcare workers uh, from in infected patients. Um, and this was um, designed uh, for COVID-19 patients, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so this was uh, something that um, uh, went through my mind in late February, early March, thinking about how can we, uh, in a sense, cope in an open intensive care unit where you don't have single rooms, you don't have negative pressure rooms, uh, you, you've got the whole, the whole air around us is potentially contaminated. Uh, and how do you look after, best look after patients, uh, but at the same time prevent infections from spreading to, to particularly in nurses and doctors, physios, etc. And it was a great collaboration with the University of Melbourne, Jason Monti, uh, and the rest uh, to get this going from, from March onwards. So can you tell us a bit uh, about that, Forbes, in terms of how you ended up collaborating with, with Jason? And obviously this is his, uh, you know, fluid dynamics is, is kind of his field of expertise. Had you guys collaborated in the past? I'm interested to know how that jump occurs from idea and a, you know, and a problem, that an idea that you have to solve a problem and how you actually find that solution. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and look, that's been the best part, I think, of, uh, this whole story, I think this is a true story of collaboration. Um, I really enjoy enjoy that process. Uh, it was it was actually through um, Sandra Kentish, who's uh, a chemical engineer at University of Melbourne, that I've been doing other unrelated work with uh, on anaesthetic gases and capturing them. And she said, I want to get in touch with... Uh, I, I sort of put this idea to her. I said, well, how do we bring, in a sense, the 
the negative pressure room to the patient when you don't even have a negative pressure room? Well, what sort of device do you use? What sort of um, uh, technique is best? And so then she put me in touch through Jason and, and his team, which have all been very good. Um, and then, then we went from there and we sort of deliberated things. I would say that also there's been involvement uh, not only with the <clears throat> Unimelbourne Mechanical Engineers, but also with CSIRO, um, Jim Patel, and a few others there as well. And so it's been it's been really exciting um, to get from that process of something that that's was sort of fairly poorly formed inside my head to something that actually was real uh, within a month. And then you know with a publication etc. Uh, in the next month after that. So it's it's been a really rapid a rapid process. I'd I'd love to hear a bit more about this development process. As you said, it's been an incredible speed for a, a medical engineering project to get it from um, concept to design and introduction in you know a matter of months or weeks rather. Um, so just could you? And I've also read the paper and I saw um, Jason as one of the uh, the subjects in the paper uh, experiencing the isolation hood. Could you describe a bit of the um, the development process and how this actually gets off the ground? Yeah, no, all right. So we, we do, do have a lot of credit to in the Western Health, many people in the Western Health team, actually, because they came to, to seek out the engineers' um, support and ideas and um, design skills. Uh, and if they hadn't done that, then I would still be working with my team in wind tunnel experiments. We'd have nothing to do with the <laughs> with helping. I wouldn't be talking to you and we wouldn't have a device. So, yeah, a lot of credit uh, to that team. Um, yeah, Forbes came to see me uh, or called us up at the start of the first lockdown, actually. And what happened there that was fortunate. So my team is, they work in wind tunnels and aerodynamics. So what happened was, though, that the lockdown forced us to close the labs. So I had a bunch of engineers who were dead keen to help out and had nothing else to do. So um, we pivoted onto this and we thought we saw what was happening around the world. Uh, working at the university, we have a lot of close colleagues in uh, in Italy and Spain, and we saw what was happening very fast. So we uh, decided to act as quickly as possible and, and try to produce something that, um, that that was going to be scalable and that we could uh, it was simple and easy to to build and and importantly could could be made with the things that were available. So a lot of materials weren't available at the time. Um, so it was a pretty challenging design process. But actually, we did it in about 48 hours. Uh, we got the brief from um, Forbes. And he was really worried about healthcare workers and the, the transmission to them. And that was our primary goal. Um, and so, yeah, we got to designing. We went through the whole engineering design process in a very short period of time and a long night and got building the next day and uh, produced a prototype that's pretty much close to what we've got now. So in terms of what this mechanism seems to be doing, essentially, I mean, forgive me if I'm oversimplifying here, it's just kind of sucking the the, uh, the, the infected droplets kind of out um, through this kind of filtration system. Um, I mean, it feels like that such a concept could have or perhaps maybe would have existed in the past for other illnesses. Is it? Have there been other instances of something like this in the past? Yeah, so we, we looked at what was out there already. And there was a lot of other devices that didn't quite fit what Forbes was asking for. And I guess that's why he came to see us. He can probably talk more about that. But there wasn't there wasn't anything exactly like this. And but it is one of those things. It's so low tech when you look at it. It's so simple. And I love these I love these simple ideas. As an engineer, you love simple things that can solve the problem. Um, and we do a lot of work with high tech stuff 
uh, in other areas, but you always want to find that thing that's it's just simple and, and works. And uh, But you've always, always, I was checking my social media feeds for all week thinking somebody's going to send me a message and say, yeah, we've already done this, mate. Wow. <laughs> but it never happened. Jason, um, when I hear you say uh, words like simple, I also wonder, does that translate into cost as well? Does this mean this is now uh, super um, accessible by, um, you know, most health system budgets? Yeah, absolutely. It's not expensive at all. Um, Certainly not in terms of uh, medical technologies. Um, it's a, it is a very simple device. I would say, however, that simple doesn't always mean you know anyone can just make it. Um, there is a couple of uh, key features that really needed our aerodynamics expertise to be able to uh, really ensure that it worked really well. So uh, Forbes, um, yeah. I was just wondering uh, about the the current. Uh, practicality of the of this hoods, and whether they're being utilised by Australian hospitals at the moment. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so, uh, since we followed on from the pre-clinical testing, which you've discussed with um, Jason, with Will Lee, and the, the rest of the, the research team there at, in, at Melbourne University, uh, we've now got a clinical trial. Um, it's involved uh, Western Health, Footscray uh, and Sunshine Hospitals, intensive cares, uh, a little bit in the emergency department and beyond. But uh, we've, um, we've, we've, so as you may have seen in some other media, uh, these these uh, hoods have been used for real patients in real intensive cares at Western Health. We've treated Western Health actually has treated. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the most of any um, intensive care. Uh, in Australia, a number of patients were treated close to 60. Uh, and it's been uh, really exciting. But the main... Um, the, the study is essentially a fairly simple one, we can use that term again, in that we're, we're looking at really um, comfort and safety of the device. So uh, the initial study was looking at aerosols and how much we reduce the, the load, the burden of aerosols. Uh, this one is looking at how does it work? Do nurses feel safe? Uh, you know, do things fall apart? Are everything working well? And it's been a really great process of, of uh, developing the device further after the initial um, after the initial work of Jason and his team. Um, so it's involved them as well, but certainly it's been focused very much upon um, nursing care in the intensive care in particular, and and that's been that's been great. Um, the other little point I want to mention is that. Not only is this device, I think, useful for reducing infection, we've had, sadly, um, we've had hundreds of infections of healthcare workers at Western Health, just like many other parts of, say, um, particularly northern and western central Melbourne. Uh, but the rates of infection in the intensive care have been vanishingly low. Uh, now, I could say there'd be a number of reasons for that, and I don't, you know, the trial was not able to definitively say it's all just about the hood, but it'd be interesting in quite open planned ICUs with no single rooms, um, not, not treating patients in negative pressure rooms. Uh, we've had vanishingly low numbers of infections in healthcare workers. The other really important point is being rammed home to me really is about how um, not only do people feel safe, uh, it also reduces infections, but also that patients themselves feel, uh, are able to receive therapies, particularly high flow oxygen and non-invasive ventilation that they, they would otherwise not able to be received because everyone is too 
worried about transmission of aerosols from those devices. So it's preventing unnecessary mechanical ventilation. We've actually had real situations of that uh, in, in our intensive cares. Um, I could tell you more about where we're going to from here, but uh, that's where we're up to at the moment. So, I mean, that sounds like that's actually quite a big step because if you're able to use things like high-flow oxygen and other non-invasive forms of oxygen as a result of this hood, does that mean you're potentially actually preventing patients from needing like things like intubation, which is yes. far more invasive? Yes, yes. absolutely. Uh, so that's, that's real. Um, we're pretty excited about that. Um, and, and as when we went to Jason and his team uh, you know, a few months ago now, that was really a part of the story that it, there's two parts to the story. One is reducing healthcare worker-related infections, uh, as well as infections in other patients from who, who are initially COVID negative, but also better treating patients. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the word aerosol there, and either you, know, you or Jason, you can kind of jump in here. This may sound a bit obvious to you, uh, I suppose, but I guess my question is, um, from everything I've read in these ventilation uh, hoods, what's being sucked out is the, uh, are the the infected droplets. In theory, will this also potentially do something for for uh, the virus that exists in aerosols? Um, because yeah, that would potentially, if we can do that, that you know, so much of the effort and expenditure and the resource limitations are for masks like N95 masks, which are there to stop aerosol transmission potentially. Um, is, uh, would your hood work for, for preventing you know, air, transmission through aerosols potentially as well? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm happy for Jason to take up this further, but, but essentially the answer is yes. Um, we have shown that in our initial study that regardless of the size, so we talk about droplets being big, you know, big particles, and aerosols, you know, maybe you call them as being smaller ones, um, this device, um, from just being a physical barrier, you know, a bit of plastic as a, hood, a canopy, that prevents the larger ones from getting out and then the little ones, all the, all the nasty little ones, are sucked away and pushed through a, a filter rather like your N95 mask in a way and they're captured as well. So, yes, this captures both. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question and it, it's fascinating because when we first started building, the, the recommendation was that this virus is only transmitted through droplets and surfaces. So airborne transmission wasn't... A, wasn't uh, high on the priority list, but we thought we'd do it as a as a just in case kind of thing because we can. Mm. Um, and now, of course, since the the hood's been developed, uh, we've um, discovered how important that is. So what you want to do for to stop that is to capture all those aerosols. You don't. We don't know exactly how many are infectious or how many are viable or or what the rates of transmission are. But if we catch all the aerosols, that's where the virus is. And we're fortunate, I guess, that there is this technology, the HEPA filter. Uh, which is a pretty standard technology, and that um, captures 99.97% uh, at least of all particles. So we're fortunate that we can get that. Uh, the one we've got came from Bunnings. Uh, that's how easy it is to get. It's right. about 40 bucks. Um, and uh, I think primarily used for things like asbestos and, and uh, capturing some other nasties in the air outside of the hospital. So um, we're fortunate that, that technology exists and we can capture all of those aerosol particles. So... The big thing about this is that it's cost-effective, it's simple, and it works. There are three big things that I see um, would be quite attractive for assisting the the effort, the healthcare efforts in places like low and middle-income countries. Do you see yourself rolling this out to? I know this might be a bit of a jump, but do you see yourself rolling this out to those countries where this kind of technology is probably desperately needed? 
that was my first um, idea, actually. I was actually thinking about when I was in Vanuatu with TB patients. Uh, so I think TB is one of the big ones in the world. Um, about 10 million people a year are infected by TB, about a million die. Um, it's, it's a massive problem. Um, of course, there's a yearly influenza as well, um, which isn't going to go away any time soon as long as they're humans. So um, I, I do think this is a, a massive one. Just to give you an idea of cost, so I'll be fairly honest about it here. At the moment, so, so this device is about to be used at the Royal Melbourne Hospital uh, and at a number of other Melbourne and country Victoria and even in Alice Springs. Um, Simon Quilty and his gang there, which is, uh, which is great. So the, the trial is, in a sense, going beyond Western Health now. Um, and I think that we're going to see a lot of interest from uh, rural communities in Australia. Uh, you know, the last thing you want is to lose your local doctor and your local nurses because you've just got one patient infected with COVID and everyone goes down. Uh, so I think that that's a really promising opportunity. Um, I, I mentioned, so the cost, so at the moment, the device is in the, you know, order of three grand. Now, it costs well in excess, as Jason will know, of more than 100 grand to put in a negative pressure room. The thing is that this device is actually even better, we think, because it, it actually has 100 ear changes per hour. 100. Now, a normal ICU has six. An isolation room, a negative pressure room, has 12. Ours mm. is 100. So it's just a thumping amount of sucking of air and moving. And it's actually not... It's actually... I'm pretty... Uh, someone who's always been very keen on... Um, but it actually uses the same power as a couple of, you know, computers. Um, it's actually a very low energy user. Um, so I think it's it's fantastic bang for your buck. Incredible. That's just um, amazing. And I think the the effort of the the whole um, the whole technology has been recognised by the Australian government with a recent uh, funding boost. If that's correct. Yeah, that's right. We received uh, funding from. Um, the Medical Research Future Fund, um, and that's largely to support the future development of the hood, uh, which Forbes kind of described before. So we, we have done some basic uh, clinical trials on safety. What this money will allow us to do is study uh, in greater detail how well the aerosols are taken out of the air in the real setting. Um, so how, how much cleaner do we make the, the hospital rooms themselves in the real setting? With real patients and a large number of them which is really important and then we'll have a second study on actual infection and and how that is changed by the hood and Forbes might be able to talk more about that but there's also a human comfort study uh, which I really want to make this point it's really important to any engineers out there who are working on uh, rapid-fire devices like this we found out early on that during SARS and MERS in Hong Kong there are a lot of devices uh, produced by local engineers and people with great ideas and almost all of them fell over because of patient comfort. Mm. Um, so it's, it's not just about the technology. If, and you can just imagine if you have a 1,000 patients in a hospital under a hood that's really uncomfortable or a, another device that's really uncomfortable and they're hitting the call button every 20 minutes saying I'm uncomfortable, mm. that's going to be a pretty hard problem to deal with. Um, and I had a lot of people say to me, why do you care so much about comfort in the early days? <laughs> Why does it matter? You're saving lives. It doesn't matter. But it actually, it's really important in terms of getting uh, it to work for the whole hospital system. So we've, our hood is really large, and it has about the maximum airflow that you can get before a person gets uncomfortable. So it's the if you if you draw too much air past somebody, like if there's a blowing wind in your face, um, it's going to be uncomfortable. 
but we've set it just below that so it's a really comfortable airflow rate for the patient and plenty of room for them to to move around hey uh jason forbes Time has flown. It's been fascinating uh, listening to you, just by way of uh, wrapping up a little bit. You know, we started off the conversation hearing from you about how quickly it went from uh, idea and concept to product. So it took about four or five months between that time and today. So between now and Christmas, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, well, we've got to... We've got, a, in addition to routine work, um, uh, one of them is the intensive care. So uh, anyway, um, look, the other, the other really important points, I think, uh, as Jason was alluding to, we've got some fantastic local manufacturers involved. So Evan Evans has taken on this. He's got therapeutic goods administration approval, uh, and we're hoping to really ramp up there. Um, Westerflex uh, local, also manufactured in, in Melbourne company, uh, makes the fans filters. Uh, I think there's real opportunity to uh, expand beyond Melbourne, uh, as well as, you know, rolling out now the MRSS uh, Future Fund um, research and, and getting that started. Um, this will all take a lot of planning and results won't be through until middle of next year, I suspect, but we'll, we'll get that rolling as well. So some pretty exciting, uh, a lot of work, a lot of work ahead of us. I, th I think, if you've got a sec, I, I think... Um we, we want to see this thing taken to the world. Uh, that would be really important to us um, because the problem is is even bigger out there. And then lastly, we, uh, we're we really keen on trying to improve hospital ventilation and actual all indoor space ventilation since uh, airborne transmission is such a big issue. That's our next goal. Well, I'll be watching uh, very closely and hopefully we get to see um, this making the huge impact that it really deserves. Thank you, Forbes. Thank you, Jason. You guys have been excellent. Uh, enjoy your Sundays. I know Forbes is at work, so um, uh, thank you for taking your time out of your busy, busy day um, to, to have a chat with us and our audience. Thank you. Thanks for having Thanks. us, guys. Thanks, guys. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We've got a little bit more biomed for you um, this morning with Professor Madhu ba ba Baskaran. I'm, I'm terribly sorry if I've um, mispronounced there. Professor, um, Professor um, Baskaran. Is another very impressive researcher and will be with us this morning talking to us about some latest developments with eSkin. Uh, professor Baskaran is a professor at RMIT and leading the uh, Functional Materials and Microsystems Research Group there. Um, and we've got a lot to talk about. Welcome to the show, Professor Baskaran. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It really is wonderful to have you with us. Um, I don't know if you caught uh, the... Um, uh, the conversation we just had with uh, with some other engineers who are dealing with biotech. I, I guess COVID has uh, prompted a lot of thinking, um, and but it hasn't all been COVID. You've been able to uh, keep research research going on. I guess skin. Are we drawing the COVID connection with skin? Not yet. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, can you just um, set us up by telling us what we – am I right to call it e-skin for it first of all? Is that is that appropriate? Yes, electronic skin is, uh, is an appropriate term, yes. Yeah, so could we just get a, a broad description to uh, kick us off? So what we have uh, created or innovated is the, uh, is the ability to have 
artificial skin, which can actually mimic skin's responses to external stimuli. So I guess what's novel about this is we have, I mean, people have always been working on this, obviously, for a long time. And you have skin which reacts to stimuli or sensing for stimuli all the time, but it only reacts at certain, when the stimuli exceeds a particular threshold. So the fact that this particular e-skin which we have created has brain mimicking electronics alongside with it and is able to recognize those thresholds and react to it is what really makes it special. Right. So maybe tell us when skin's behaving as it should, when it's communicating with the nervous system as it should, what's happening and then where does um, – and is e-skin completely replicating that or is it is it dealing with the um, nervous system differently? Okay, so I'm an electronics engineer, so if my interpretation of the central nervous system is not quite accurate, I'm sure I can be forgiven for that. <laughs> yes, for so, sure. So from what I understand, uh, it's, the skin is actually like a giant electronic electrical circuit. So a lot of the signaling which happens within the nervous system is, again, in the form of electric signals. So what the skin basically does is we're always sensing things, obviously. Say, for instance, we're always touching things, so we are all, the skin is our largest sensory organ. But we only react when the external stimuli exceeds a particular threshold. So say, for instance, you're touching something really hot, then you react very differently to, say, touching something at room temperature. And what essentially happens is signals from the skin are sent through the nervous system to the brain, and the brain's initiating the motor response. So when you touch something hot, then the intensity of that signal and the way the brain responds is very different to touching something which is not so very dangerous. And this skin pretty much is an electronic replica of the same thing. So right from the point where you have an external stimuli, so in this case we apply either pressure or temperature as the external stimulus, we have a sensing element of the circuit which is picking up the external stimulus. It's sending the information to the brain-mimicking electronic side of the circuit, which is then sensing if the signal is above or below the threshold, and therefore do you need to react in an appropriate manner, or is it okay, and so you can just continue as normal. Right. Um, how new is this technology? Obviously, this um, update that you're bringing to us uh, today um, is fresh, but how long have people been working on something like uh, eSkin? So the various aspects of it have probably been worked upon for, say, the last five to ten years in different aspects. So temperature-sensitive materials are something which obviously decades' worth of research has gone into that one. Uh, brain mimicking electronics is relatively new, maybe around 10 to 12 years of people trying to see if they can mimic the brain in a circuit, which is quite a hard thing to do because the brain is extremely energy efficient and operates in ways which one fully doesn't understand yet. Right. Uh, so stretchable skin or flexible electronics, again, is a field which is probably around 5 to 10 years old. And so what this brings is kind of a combination of those three branches of research into one technology. Right, and and this technology, could you describe it to us? What does it look like if we were if we were to hold it in our hand? So it's a it's a contact lens type material. So if you can imagine, it's a material which is very similar to our skin in terms of its mechanical properties. So the that's one of the innovations in our group: the ability to actually combine materials within this contact lens type stretchable silicone material. So it's silicone rubber. So it's very similar to the sealant that you use, you know, in in plumbing, but it's it's in the form of a sheet. So it's a thin contact lens type material, which is very similar to the skin and is transparent. And you have the electronics kind of embedded within it or created within it. Is it, um, is it thinner than, say, a Band-Aid? Yes, I would say it's actually thinner than a Band-Aid. Right, right. Um, and is it applied as a sheet or as patches? 
So currently we're working on it more as patches, but I guess that's one of the immediate next steps for the work to actually kind of upscale it and make it more sheet-like. It's possible, it's just that we haven't really done it yet. Right, right. And and does that mean it... Um, it my, I'm, I'm referencing for my own purposes here, and I'm, I'm sure I'm oversimplifying, uh, the way that, say, bandages might have worked. Does that mean you have to keep reapplying um, the e-skin like you would have to reapply bandages over time? Or do these have a longer lifespan on the body? So the... Original reason we got into this kind of work was to make patches which can sense the external environment or can sense things happening within us. Now, with those patches, it's just applied on the skin similar to a Band-Aid. And what really takes care of it is the skin's exfoliation process, which I think lasts for around seven days or so. So it's able to withstand, you know, bathing cycles and things like that. And then after seven days or so, it will fall off. But obviously, you don't want that happening if it's an e-skin. Um, so in that case, you have to think of ways in which you can kind of connect it to the nervous system, similar manner in which you connect our prosthetics, and then hopefully it can be much more longer lasting than, you know, the uh, standard seven-day turnaround thing. Right, right. And would, would it be something that um, a user can apply themselves, or if there is reapplication required, will they need to go to a health clinic um, and a specialist uh, doctor perhaps? With the e-skin, I wouldn't imagine a user doing it, and I definitely wouldn't imagine you having to go to the doctor regularly for it either. So I would think it needs to be wired up somehow similar to a prosthetic, so where you wouldn't need to intervene as often. So hopefully it's done and then it's safe for a good duration of time, and you don't need to keep running to the doctor to you know see what's wrong. Right, right. Um, and is it expensive? It's relatively uh, cheaper technology because the materials are cheap and large scale, once it's done in large scale or quantities, then you're not thinking at, you're not uh, thinking of very expensive technology. It's going to take us a bit of research to get there though, and but uh, it's definitely not expensive. So, Madhu, I'm sorry, uh, you mentioned earlier the word prosthetics and, and applications. So can you give us a, an idea of where these, these new technologies might lead? Uh, obviously, prosthetics is something that comes to mind, potentially people with problems with their nerves as well? So, yeah, when we imagine this, we originally thought of, you know, obviously prosthetics, uh, the focus on prosthetics has been the fact that you can initiate a motor response, but the prosthetics actually lack the ability to feel. So anything where you can lend enhanced sensitivity to the skin is a possible application. So this could be to have uh, to make the prosthetics a more of a real-life experience. Or, uh, you know, somebody emailed me just a couple of days back and let me know that uh, they have issues where they've lost sensitivity in their skin in certain aspects. And so could this be reimagined for that application? And I thought that's fantastic, you know. And so skin grafts, obviously, is, is another possible application as well. Right. So anywhere where someone's lost any skin, say, in burns, uh, and you know, nerve problems in terms of sensation, they're not probably as rare as people imagine. Say something like diabetes, a very common uh, complication there is what we call diabetic neuropathy, and people lose the sensation on their feet. And it causes so many uh, pro- problems there. I guess to my next question there, as a clinician, I'm so excited to hear about these uh, possible technologies. Uh, where are you in terms of the, 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 the testing of this? And is this just all been in, in, in laboratory measuring kind of electrical signals or has there been any kind of any scope for human testing soon? So, so far, no human testing, uh, but it, it's been laboratory based. But I guess the advance in this particular demonstration is the fact it's been with real stimuli. So people have done artificial skin or, or you know, uh, mimicking skin before, but they've used stimuli, which is the equivalent of an external stimuli, whereas this one actually senses actual pressure, actual temperature, 
and actually can recognize where you know a temperature or a pressure has gone beyond at the point where it starts require in, requiring intervention. But it's still very much lab based. It's not really you know being tested out on humans yet. And look, I think I'm getting a bit excited and very sci-fi here, but is there a possibility <laughs> to actually kind of change the, the threshold so potentially skin becomes super sensitive? Exactly. And that, that was one of the other applications that you kind of imagined it to be as well. It's kind of one of uh, one of my industry partners had put this to me a couple of years back and she said, you know, surgeons rely a lot on their fingers for the textural differences when palpating tissue and things like that. And sometimes the gloves don't give you the same experience. Mm. So imagine you can have smart gloves which kind of lend that extra sensitivity and hopefully gives you the same experience and helps you, you know, have a better feel of things. Wow, so it's amazing, for amazing. For defense, yeah, so where you want to enhance the sensitivity of the skin in sports or defense applications, that's definitely a possibility as well because you can adjust those thresholds. So we're all oversensitive and sometimes we're undersensitive or sometimes you have sunburned skin which has enhanced sensitivity. So this can mimic the, the variations in sensitivity as well. My goodness, the mind boggles. <laughs> you did take us into the uh, science fiction realm there for a moment. Um, neonatal, was that you just... No, you're right. Um, Dr. Sharma, sorry. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, go on. I, I did have another question. So we, you've mentioned some of the senses there. You mentioned, obviously, pain and temperature. Uh, and I guess there's some more complex uh, uh, sensations as well. For example, proprioception comes to mind, the sensation of joint positioning, even though if you, you know, your eyes are closed, if you move your fingers around, you can tell what's moving where. Um, it, it feels like that's kind of the, the the final jump to make in terms of completing the set of sensations because you know, once you've kind of got that and and you can give people potentially the power to kind of you know, move their limbs, their, their prosthetic limbs, you'll have something that's just indistinguishable from 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 human limbs, you know, kind of you know, organically. So in terms of that sensation, proprioception, that that sense of joint positioning, is that something that's kind of within the the scope, maybe if not of your work, but something that's achievable soon? Are there technologies out there for this? So with the one which you mentioned, what would actually you be sensing? Like what exactly is the skin sensing in that particular case? I guess that's a million-dollar question. It's 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 something that I, I don't understand uh, fully. I mean, there are certain nerve fibres that are uh, that seem to sense the the amount that a muscle has 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 moved and the angle at which which it's moved at, and that provides uh, a kind of sensory feedback. That's not like a conscious feedback, I suppose, that then informs our, our motor functioning. Um, is it? I guess what I'm trying to ask is: Is this all just a matter of essentially electrical signals that, uh, you know, once you kind of create that little spark, is it like? Is there any limit to what we can sense? So so far, we've converted everything into electrical signal equivalents. So even the temperature sensitive material, what it essentially does is, once the temperature exceeds a particular threshold, it changes its crystallographic properties, and so its electronic properties changes, and so the electrical signals it senses it, it sends out kind of changes. But so anything which we can obviously convert to an electrical signal equivalent is a natural next step for this particular application. But I'll be certainly interested in looking into what you suggested. I'll go and read up on that one. Amazing. 
Professor, um, Professor Baxter, I'm very, very sorry. I am um, tongue-tied this morning. Uh, <laughs> Professor Baxgaran, really appreciate your time, um, and it has gone very, very fast. It's really fascinating work, and I'm glad we've been able to uh, introduce it to our listeners. If they want to know more, they can go to theconversation.edu, um, the website there, and there's a... Um, an article that talks through um, this work. Um, otherwise, uh, where else might they be able to um, find out more? Um, I'm happy for people to email me. I think the conversation article kind of allows you to get in touch with me through yeah. comments and things like that. But obviously, Google me and you will find you know numerous ways in which you can contact me. And I'm certainly interested in hearing more from people because that's where my best ideas come from. Thank you so very much for being with us. We've been speaking with uh, Professor Baskaran from RMIT University talking all things e-skin. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Dr. Sharma and Neonatal, how are you holding up there? I'm I'm in awe of our guests today. They were um, such incredible people with incredible ideas, and it's um, quite quite humbling to be hearing all of uh, all of the biomedical engineering and advancements that are taking place. We're pretty. Yeah. We're pretty lucky on the um, the Sunday morning shows, amongst other shows on on Triple R, of course. But I just know specifically from the Sunday morning shows, Marinara, us, and Einstein bringing some amazing researchers together. Some really incredible stuff. And uh, today was just a fi- such a fine example of what seems like a very highly complex idea and what seems like a simple uh, idea and yet we can see there's just layer upon layer of work in, in, in each of them so we're, we're just very thankful to, to to hear about these incredible innovations and uh you know and, and just this incredible work that's going on we're going to see the results of this very soon it's incredible um i wanted to um put a uh a, a a note out of a recently dear departed um over the um over the over the week, David Graeber, a uh, social anthropologist who might be known to radio uh, therapy listeners um, as somebody who dealt with um, work, in, among other things, work um, and work in society, and made a major contribution in um, linking the concept of the how we deal with our work lives and our mental health. And he passed away very surprisingly during the week. And if you are so inclined to follow up that kind of topic, work and our mental health, um, his book, Bullshit Jobs, um, will be well worth you checking out. It's been great having you with us, with Dr Sharma, um, with Neonatal, myself, Panel Beta. Check us out on our socials and we'll be back with you next um Yes, next Sunday. (laughs) I'm all over the shop today, folks. Um, All right, bye for now. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.